Have you ever dreamed of going to Hollywood and making it big? Well, these are the stories of people who have made it, just in a different way. They're the unsung heroes behind the screens that make movies and television come to life. Welcome to the Right Scuff Podcast, where we talk about films and interview those who are just starting their careers to some of the biggest names in production and post-production. Our mission is to inspire you through the true stories of people who have achieved their dreams. We'll be talking to Foley artists, screenwriters, sound editors, picture editors, the list goes on. And for film fans, we'll be focusing on sound and what it takes to create Foley. Hi, I'm Sarah. I'm a writer. And I'm John, a professional Foley artist in the film business for over 40 years. He's worked on over 500 films and is a 37-time nominated and 9-time MPSD winner for big titles such as Inception, The Matrix, and The Dark Knight. You can find us online at rightscuff.com and please be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes. Well, good morning everybody. That's what it is for us here. I'm down in Burbank uh, with the Right Scuff. Sarah is on vacation still. So I'm lucky enough to have Vicki Sampson with me who's a filmmaker, supervising sound editor, designer, a writer, a director, among other things. Yes, she is Kay Rose's daughter, but this is just only, that was only one small part of her life, if you will. In other words, she has an incredible story to tell us, and I'm glad that she's here, and we're just going to have some fun. So, Vicki, welcome to the program. Hi, John. Thanks for having me. <laughs> this is great. Um, you get my morning voice now. Okay. Okay. What, is you it can different? always pitch me up a little bit if you need to. <laughs> make me sound 20 years younger. I don't know. I, I think you're doing pretty good still, actually. <laughs> okay. I, I know I, I need that help for sure. Um, and I guess we'll just start right in with, at some point in your life, did you know you wanted to be doing cutting sound effects, directing? I mean, what, what kind of is the genesis? Of, is a, What happened? Well, I grew up in a movie-loving, movie I grew up in a movie-loving household. So my mom loved movies. My dad was a film editor and a B-movie director, so they were both, like, into movies. My mom more so than my dad. I mean, she'd always love stories, so books and stories were a big part of my life from the time I was two. So I think I wanted to always be a writer because I loved stories, and I loved storytellings, and I love how my mom would tell me stories and read me books. So and she and she did that at a young age, I assume. Yeah, I mean, I remember reading it two and a half. Wow, so, that's great. Yeah. I mean, that's, I, I think that's really important. And, and what was your dad's name? Sherman Rose. Sherman Rose, okay. Yes. Is there any film that we might have seen that he did? Yeah, he directed uh, a cult classic called Target Earth, which was made in 1952 or three. Right, right before I was born. I was born in 53, so now you all know how old I am. You can send presents if you want. May, may the 4th be with you. That's my birthday. Easy to I remember. I get to say that. May the 4th be with you. Me and Don Rogers were both born on the that's same right, day. That's right. That's <laughs> right. So, yeah, my dad did Tank Battalion and Target Earth. Wow. So Target Earth was a movie that he co-produced with my mom for about $60,000 way back then. And they wow. only had enough money to... Uh, make an alien uh, like spacesuit from the front, so they'd film the monster walking towards the camera, and then they they'd change and put the suit on the back of him, and then film him walking away. That's how cheap a production. It wow! Was. But it it still plays, and they shot downtown L.A. at like seven in the morning on a Sunday, so there was no traffic. It looked like 
you know, the aliens had come and taken over the earth kind of thing. That's great. And so this yeah. was kind of in the household as you were growing up. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I remember, you know, when I was little, of course, let's see, my parents got divorced when I was five. So it was just my mom, you know, raising me. But I saw my dad on the weekend. So he became like the fun dad. And we did all this. We flew in his plane over the valley and went horseback riding, went to Palm Springs. And, you know, my mom had the brunt of the work of raising Raising you. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, she was busy working. She in the 60s, she worked on the rifleman in the big valley over at CBS. So 4020 Radford was like my emergency contact, you know, address for wow. Her wow. from school. I had it memorized, you know. <laughs> and I remember that, you know, she would come home and her hands would be like black. And I was like, what does she do, you know? And of course, when you run film through a movieola, your hands get very dirty. So the first thing I always remember is she'd come home and wash her hands and, you know. And then I thought, as I got older, I realized that... Um, you know, I wanted to be with her more because I wasn't with her when I was little. And I had a, a chance to intern with her and Verna Fields, who is the film editor of Jaws, mm-hmm. and, um, and George Brand, who is a very famous music editor. And we, uh, they all worked on this terrible movie called The Fusty Pendant. The Fusty is, Pendant? <laughs> Pendant. It went through a lot of titles, but it was... Tell me it, it was, was a comedy. Uh, no, <laughs> it was uh, Ken Handler, who was the son of uh, Mattel, oh, yeah. Barbie and Ken. That's where their names come from. And he wanted a chance at directing, so he created this movie. And he had my mom as the sound editor, Verna as the picture editor, George as the music editor, and I think Dick Portman mixed it. Wow. And we did it, and I was the apprentice, you know, lowly apprentice editor, because it was in the summer, like when I was maybe 14 or 15. And it was in the back of Verna's house in... Uh, uh, where'd she live? Sherman Oaks. Sherman Oaks, right? Yeah. And or Van Nuys, actually. Was and, it? Okay. Uh, um, she had a pool house, and so she set up a movieola, and you know, in the pool house, so she could stay home with her sons. Back then, and she had a dog named Bubbles, who was this big <laughs> German shepherd who got hair all over the floor and all over the film and the movieola. And <laughs> it was quite exciting. And Spielberg came, you know, to reshoot some stuff on Jaws and in her pool. Right, like so Vicky, Vicky, get out of the pool. We're we got to put Bruce in. <laughs> that was my that was my childhood, and, That's fantastic. Um, and going around like Gene Fowler, Marge and Gene Fowler, who were famous very much film so. editors, and Gene was the grandson of Gene Fowler the third or something who wrote Good Night, Sweet Prince about the Barrymore family. So mm-hmm. I hung out at their house a lot, and even met Papa Hemingway, and I didn't know who he was. You know, he, was, he looked like Santa Claus to me, but. <laughs> So that was, yeah. Well, know. so you really had kind of this whole roster of, of, of um, people that, you know, were doing their thing. And interesting to note, um, you know, your mom and Verna and you, uh, women uh, in a very much male-dominated industry, you know, and I'm, I know, I'm glad to see that that's changing quite a bit now. I don't want to get off track, but I just, I think that's, that's great. And well, was, in actuality, though, uh, there were women film editors abundantly during during like the 40s and 50s because it was true. thought to be uh, not a great job so men didn't want it and then ah. it became where the film editor was almost akin to a writer or um, close to the director and so then more men wanted to do that job and got most of the women out of there those <laughs> those pesky guys but uh I, that's good i didn't know that i mean <clears throat> I, I guess I, I guess i knew it on some level anyway so, so you're there at in the in the in the backyard in the pool house, and uh, doing your thing, and then 
when you finished that, did you go, okay, well, this is great, but I think I really want to go on and be, you know, sell insurance or did you really kind of know like, well, this is really sell insurance that never came to my mind. <laughs> no, I mean, I always thought of myself as a writer because I, I wanted to write stories. I loved books and stories. And so that's what I thought of myself. But Basically, I always applied myself to whatever I did. I did it really well. Like I worked at the submarine sandwich shop in high school and I made sure that, you know, the sandwiches, like everything is what it's supposed to be. So, right. <clears throat> you know, I was excited about movies and, you know, running a film through a moviola, even even the um, uh, the fill leader that we used were old, you know, picture dupes from the year before. And I would like make up my own stories using those pictures. Really? Tapes. So you yeah. take for the audience to know, of course, yeah. The the we would work on dupes, work 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 Copies, pictures, duplicates, duplicates, yeah. and we call them dupes. And then, of course, once those were done, done and over with, um, well, you you get a dupe. One of trying to say is you get a dupe, and it could be from a film that had been released, like you said, a year or two previous. So you actually took various dupes and cut them together. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> do you still have those? No. <laughs> huh. No. Do you, do you remember any of the um, titles? I just remember being you know, stimulated by, by thinking of stories like there would be beautiful shots of clouds, and then I was like trying to create a story about the creation of the earth or something and then so every now and then we get porno films in there too so oh boy that was okay. like mom look what i found she's like put that away <laughs> <laughs> and of course your mom did not say okay you know uh, i really want you to you know now go to get a degree in law or something she really let you no, have your yeah she totally you know encouraged me in all my areas i mean because I, I did a lot of things well i was a photographer i was my high school photographer for the newspaper and my dad had a still photo lab when I was young on Laurel Canyon here in the valley and uh, called Victoria Productions, named after yours truly. And so I learned how to develop and print my own film. And he was the, um, the lab that Henry Diltz, who was the famous photographer of Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young and Joni Mitchell and James Taylor. Wow. So any black and white prints were developed by my dad and the monkeys. And so I would like go in there after hours and make my own prints and then take them to school and sell them for like 50 cents. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, I did photography. I was on the tennis team. I, you know, I did a lot of different things, you know, writing and, um, you know, we didn't have film programs back then. I probably would have been in a, like a filmmaking program. Now schools have everything like films on your iPhone, you know, (laughs) in fact, they've done that. Yeah. So it all comes from the story. So the story to me was King. So that's why whenever I got a chance to talk to director writers like Richard Brooks, my mom worked on many of his films. Mm Um, you know, it was like heaven to me to be around writers. Can you think of any story that like comes to mind? Like, oh, I remember asking Richard Brooks or asking whomever, and they told me something that really stuck with me. Hmm. I wish I could. I mean, I, I remember, you know, he was an old journalism guy. And so he, if he saw an orange pencil, he would like pick it up and break it in half. Like you could not have orange pencils because they were like bad luck. So you had to have the black warrior pencils or... Ticonderoga or whatever those were, you know. But I can't remember, you know, uh, I mean, what I learned from working on Richard, I did two Richard Brooks films. Now, which films were those? Looking for Mr. Goodbar and um, Wrong is Right. My mom had done The Professionals with him, and, um, you know, she tended to get with directors who kept her, you know, like would hire her over and over, Mark Rydell, Alan Pakula, you know... um, What's the other? Uh, Sydney 
Cindy Pollock, mm-hmm. even Re- Robert Redford and Barbara Streisand. I mean, she did the way we were. Mm-hmm. And so when Robert Redford did Ordinary People, he hired her to do the sound editing. When Barbara did Prince of Tides, she hired her to do the sound editing. So I was thinking that that's how the business worked. Like you stuck with directors and worked with them. And then, you know, when I came along and started working with my mom, and I got good at it. I mean, she didn't even get me in the union. It was, wow. on, it was on a Mark Rydell film called Cinderella Liberty. <laughs> Great and film. I was uh, 20. Yeah. James Kahn and... Um, Marsha Mason? Marsha Mason, mm-hmm. yeah. Yep. And uh, yeah, it was a really good film. And um, I was the apprentice and the film editor was Don Camburn. You're and, kidding. Yeah. Wow. He, he got... Because my mom said, look, if you want to be in the business, it's up to you. You know, I, I can certainly turn you on to opportunities but I'm not I'm not going to get you in the union you know right so he got me in the he called the union and back then you had to like have everybody on the roster had to be working so he went through the roster there was like six people six apprentices and he's like drunk 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 oh no no he's no good okay you're in wow you're <laughs> so kidding that's how I got in I got in the union when I was 20 that's great you still talk to Don now these days um yeah I haven't seen him in a while I, I know he was at AFI Oh, okay. as uh, in, uh, um, he was in great. residence, he's, so to speak. Yeah. But uh, oh. yeah, he's but well, that's interesting. So, so I, I learned a lot about you know story and because you know I think Richard Brooks. I forget who he was quoting, but there's three times when you write a movie. There's when you write a movie. There's when you direct the movie. There's when you edit the movie, because all three of those things change the way the story goes. Wow. So, and I love all three of those things. I love writing, I love directing, I love film editing. Right. And I love sound editing too, but you know, there comes a point where you go, I'm, I'm just, I'm making other people's films sound really good and they don't even know what I've done. And I really feel like (laughs) in my heart, I need to be a writer. (laughs) Right. So, so quick aside to, I'm looking for Mr. Goodbar. Now tell me if this is true or not. I'd heard tale that somehow Corman had gotten either, I think, a look at that picture and put out a, a very quick, um, pale imitation. And he found out about it, so he was very upset. And so the next picture he did that you guys weren't allowed to have dupes? Is that? Am I well, cl- we, we could have dupes. Um, we had to do our own cleaning. Yeah, Brooks was uh, of the mind that. Uh, even if you thought about your movie, that somehow it's going to be out in the universe and somebody's going to steal it. I didn't know about the Roger Corman thing, but that's what he adopted. So the projectionist had to keep the dowser closed. Even when we were doing the Foley, the dowser had to be closed until the, the queue came up and then, you know, he would open it up. Wow. Like, and the, the projection room had to be locked at all times. And he would go and check. He would go upstairs and, and you know, rattle the doorknob and make sure that the dupe was locked, you know, that... The screening was locked. He was very um, paranoid about that. Right, and the, and the dowsers would, would allow the uh, picture to be pro- literally projected. In other words, going through well, past the, the dowsers like a little window, right. That you know opens and closes, like when because you had a two projection system. So the end of reel one, you had to turn on reel two projector so that it would run up to speed by the time the academy leader runs out. Right, and then they would flip the dowsers. Right. So. Would like open one window and close the other. So, but he would be up there, the projectionist mm-hmm. or she, he would be, oh, that's amazing. Wow. And, you know, projectionists back then, there's like, okay, you put up a reel and you can rest for like 10 minutes, you know, or 20 minutes right. or whatever they, but the, the projectionists on Brooks films, they had to like be right there at the window, making sure that nobody else was coming through to look at it. Wow. And, yeah. Wow. <laughs> so, so past that now, you've been working with your mom for a while. What, at what point did you, 
actually do a picture by yourself, and what was that? Um, well, I had worked with my mom since 1973, and then in 1984, I got to supervise the sound on Clan of the Cave Bear. That was my first solo. No, sorry, it wasn't 84. Oh, boy. No. I want to uh, say 83? I'll look it up. I don't know. I can't remember now. Um, but, you know, back then, you, you really had to go through the ranks of being an apprentice for a few years, being an assistant editor for like five years before you could even be an editor. And now what I found from, from teaching, I've been teaching post-production sound and techniques since like 92. I started at UCLA and then I went to Video Symphony. I've taught at AFI, I've taught at USC. Um, and uh, those kids, they come out of film schools thinking that they're editors, <laughs> which there's nothing wrong with that. I'm glad that they're thinking that way, but they don't go through, nobody goes through the process anymore of really learning their stuff because the crews are smaller the films don't have the budgets to support apprentice editors. You know, right. Barely even assi and, uh, assistant editors are working on maybe three or four movies at a time. You know. You know. To that end, would you give any aspiring uh, director uh, any hints that he or she could do for their film from a sound standpoint that would be smart? How how long do we have to talk? <laughs> I, I I mean, this is my passion project, also to teach young filmmakers the value of getting sound on the set. Like people always say, oh, we can fix it in post. Yes, we can, but it's better to fix it on the set before it becomes a problem in post because, you know, time and money is as they are. <laughs> that's a weird sentence. Um, I don't know if that's grammatically correct. I don't know. Work for I me. can hear my mom saying, no, that's not correct. Um, <laughs> she was a very, very big stickler on grammar. Anyway, um, so I would say to, um, well, a few of us wrote a very, I don't know if you're included on that document, but it's called A Letter from Your Sound Department, and I can send you the packet of materials that I have. Is there a place online to find this? Um, I, I posted a link to like a Google Drive, so I have okay. it somewhere, but yeah, I can send it to you. You can send it out. Sure. It's really great because it talks about like putting, boot. you know, if we're not going to see people's feet, we put booties on their on their shoes, like hospital booties, so that their their feet don't make enough sound for two reasons. One is to keep the, the sound of the feet from interfering with the dialogue, and also to give people like John Rush a chance to foley the feet. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it's mainly because, you know, the, the, the whole object of, the whole objective to shooting production sound is to get the dialogue as clean as possible. Because we can always add sound to things. We can't always take it away. Right. So adding sounds, like you don't want to have music on your set while you're filming. Uh, a, a great example of that was on, a, on Looking for Mr. Goodbar. There's a scene where Richard Gere is kind of doing this knife, this, this glow-in-the-dark switchblade knife in his little tidy whities And he's banging on the kitchen, and he's running around the kitchen. And um, Brooks wanted him to have the music playing during the shoot to give him the energy to do all that and to dance. But immediately, I mean, Brooks knew so much about sound, it was amazing. Um, he would turn off the camera and he'd have Richard Gere do the sound exactly the same but without the music. So it was like fresh in his muscle memory. Wow. And my mom took that track, it's called a wild track when a, a, a scene is shot with no picture, and she was able to sync that up like, like butter. Wow, wow. <laughs> And it's great because it's all the production sound, but just with no, no music. 
All right, and I don't you know, know. Did I answer your you, question? You did, and I think what we'll do is we'll uh, we'll I'll put at the end of the the program uh, uh, the link that you sent me down the line. And what I do want to do too is just jump back for a second to Clan of the Cave Bear. Mm. Um, were there any um, challenges in that film that uh, <laughs> that the uh, uh, normal people would not know about? Let's say. <laughs> Well, that, that whole film was a challenge because I, I had read the book and I remember I was working on Return of the Jedi at the time uh, and I was up at, up at you know, Lucasfilm, which wasn't Lucasfilm yet. Um, and I was like, oh man, I wish I could, you know, I wish they'd make a movie of this and I could do the sound on it. And then I, I got the call. They did make the movie and I did get the call and I was like so thrilled. And, um, it, but it was at a time in sound where synthesized music was becoming popular and production companies realized they could save a lot of money by not having to pay a hundred piece orchestra. They could have synthesized music. Well, synthesized music involves all the spectrum of sound waves. So here I'm trying to create this very primal soundscape of, you know, the land before time, but we, you know, we had no dinosaurs, you know, cause it was at that time where the dinosaurs were gone and Cro-Magnon and the, you know, <laughs> Neanderthals and all that stuff were, so I couldn't put like pterodactyls screaming in the air and stuff. So I had to have like very, you know, and, and cave wind and all this stuff. And so I created these very cool backgrounds, but the movie was almost wall to wall music, which ate up all the frequencies of all my sound design, Wow, which was disheartening to me because it was like, oh, it's so good. And then, you know, they had made up a language in the, in the book. It's, they're all telepathic. Well, how do they convey that? So the actors actually created their own dialogue their own uh, language um and we all learned the language and uh so and and i was on that film for a year i mean i had suki fontaloo as my foley wow. person and uh terry Dorman. they went away uh, people got married came back and <laughs> kept working on the movie and i remember suki coming to me she goes you know i've been conforming foley for four months now <laughs> people bought houses and i mean it was the longest film i've ever been on because right. There's so many ways they could edit it, and it was a it was a movie that was in trouble, and uh, no amount of fixing could really fix that. But I, and I, I used my my daughter Amy was um, um, like six or so at the time, and uh, she had a very high pitched scream. Ah, uh, the young Ayla, I'll mm -hmm. bet, right? Yep, she played young Ayla. And, sonically. And yeah. John, yes, sonically, right. We used her voice. It was actually the director's daughter who played the, the young Ayla in the movie. And in the scene where um, she loses her mother in the earthquake sequence, uh, he actually climbed down into the pit. And that little girl was so traumatized because she wouldn't even come in the editing room. Wendy Brickmont was the film editor. Wow. And she was so traumatized by it. She was like three or something at the time. She wouldn't step foot in the editing room if that sequence was on them, Kim. Wow, and <laughs> and, and, and you're right. It's an interesting picture to see, just like you say, for the language, because mm -hmm. you know, yeah, Tom Casa, yeah. you know, and and they would punctuate their their guttural constant whatever they were saying yeah. with with um, hand gestures and movements and things, right, right. and 
And from a Foley standpoint, that was really a challenge, yeah. you know, to make it sound real. <laughs> yeah. And just the crunching Organic. of the snow, you know, and the glaciers. And, right. I mean, we it was such a good, you know, it really was a very high quality sound job, but you couldn't really hear it because of... And then I, I went to Tippy Hedren's place, her lion place, mm-hmm. to get um, to try to get lion sounds. And I had the old PZM mics, which are pres- pressure zone mics that I think Ed Bannon told me about, and he, he, we taped them together so they kind of formed a triangle. So they had little, they had like metal plates with little slits at the, so the sound would hit the plate and go into the microphone part. So I had this, you know, kind of faux stereo configuration of that, and I went to the lion cage, and, and I was about to like record whatever the lion was going to do, growl or something, and he turned around and he peed on me. Oh. And you could hear it hit the microphone, and I say, oh, shoot, or, or yeah. something equivalent of that. And the and the lion, uh, you know, trainer guy, he says, "Oh, he he likes you. He's claimed you for his own." I said, "What are we supposed to do? Get a room? I mean, what?" <laughs> <laughs> so, so there was there was adventures like that, and just you know, a lot of a lot of uh, you know, testing out new voiceovers. We had Salome Jens who finally did the voiceover, but we had men, we had women, we had different dialogues i mean a movie like that you can cut a million different ways and make it say a million different things so you know that's interesting have you ever utilized that in in um you know at uh, universities or in colleges saying you know take a scene and cut it and you know come up with your version you know that'd be cool i always thought film editing contests should do that like give everybody the same footage and let people come up with different ways to edit it it's fascinating really to try that I, i i totally agree and uh I'm going to jump ahead now to a, a couple of questions because I, th- I I know this is going to be uh, Vicky Sampson's uh, interviews one, two, and three. I, I feel like it's be three. So being this one, is there a um, a mo- if we get in the time machine and go back to a moment? Uh, I don't know when you're 14 or 17. Just some moment where you were at a crossroads. Is there anything you would tell yourself that you've learned now back then and and would that be germane to maybe hmm. the younger people in our audience that, you know, are trying to get into the business? You know, like what, what, what advice would you give them, so to speak? Oh, you ask such interesting questions. Um, I would, I would say to my young self, focus on the one thing you truly love and go do that and get good at that. Um, I, f- I find that I'm sort of um, a Jill of all trades and not that I'm not a master of any. I am a master of almost all of them, and I've heard that phrase too. Mm-hmm. But And it, I think it's good to be well-rounded, but I think I would have liked to just concentrate it on like a writing-directing pathway as opposed to you know, following in my mom's footsteps. And um, not that there was anything wrong with that, and I'm very proud and, and happy with um, what I did in the business and that I got to work with her on such great films um, and got to meet such great directors and other creative people. Um, but I, I, I wanted to be more in the driver's seat mm. and I got kind of stuck, you know, just from life things happening. I mean, you know, my husband had died when our children were, you know, he got cancer and died mm. when my kids were six and, and eight. And so I had to keep working, you know, and, and uh, working in the movie business was very lucrative and my friends that went to college were making, you know, like six bucks an hour and I'm making like, you know, a thousand dollars a week or whatever it was back then. Right. So there was no way that I was going to, that I could afford to 
kind of stop that mm. and, and, you know, concentrate on writing. I mean, I couldn't write anything back then. I mean, I tried and I got accepted into the directing workshop for women at AFI. Yeah, DWW, in 1987, yes. 1987. Mm-hmm. Made my first short film, Last Chance Saloon. And that was a great experience. And then I went on to do another short film called Click Three Times with uh, Isabel Sanford as a magical fairy godmother to a mentally challenged young woman who thinks that she is a fairy godmother. Wow. I don't know if she really was or not. (laughs) But as Isabel said when I asked her that, I said, so do you think she's a fairy godmother or just a homeless woman taking advantage of a mentally challenged woman? And she goes, honey, if she ain't a fairy godmother, I ain't playing her. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, that's great. Yeah, and and because I did a lot of uh, ADR, which is automated dialogue replacement, where the actor comes in and redoes their their voice for the uh, screen, you know, in case of uh, problems with sound, like on speed, they couldn't use all this, all the dialogue that was shot on the buses because the engine was actually running and the whole premise of the movie is it has to stay under a certain, you know, speed or, or the bus blows up. Right. Right. So, um, so all the actors had to come in and redo their dialogue. And that was my job on that film. And, uh, you know, so, I learned a lot how to work with actors by being on the ADR stage. Hmm. So and that's, you know, and a lot of directors just let me direct. Uh, Wes Craven, I did four films with him, and he was uh, such a gentleman and such a wonderful person. Well, that's fabulous. Yeah, I, mean, yeah that, that... I, miss, I miss him a lot. But he would just let me direct like the Loop Group, which is a group of actors who come in and do improv voices for the background players in a, fil- in a scene, mm-hmm. like in a restaurant or an airport or something. Right. And he would just, you know, he would just sit there quietly and let me direct them. And then every now and then he'd offer like a, a word or two that he'd want somebody to say. But he was very generous in, you know, being a mentor. I consider him a mentor. And Mark Rydell, he's one of my favorites. Oh, boy. He yeah. was he was something special in that yeah. Mark Rydell. Um, but all along I kept, you know, uh, you know, having my eye on the on on wanting to make an impact in the world with, with whatever movies I can do. But... What I found now is it's really hard to get a movie made, uh, even with all the technology and the, the cheapness of ha- what it is to shoot. I mean, when I did Click Three Times, it cost uh, about $35,000 to shoot on 35-millimeter film. Mm-hmm. And um, we just shot a film I directed last year called Shelby's Vacation, also a 35-minute film. And um, see, I'm really trying to get to that feature length. Uh you know, and it it costs about thirty five thousand also. Wow! When all is said and done, and it's all on digital. So, but it took me a year to edit, and that's why I think you know films need to marinate. You know, when you when you make a movie, um, and I I don't recommend. Well, I shouldn't say that. I was going to say I don't recommend. You know, if you direct a movie, that you also edit it. Because I think it, it's helpful to have another perspective. I, gr- I totally agree. But when you're first starting out, I think if you I think one of the things is you can, you know, record your own movie, you know, like make sure you get good sound. Mm -hmm. If you edit your own film, then you can see the mistakes that you needed to correct when you're directing Mm -hmm. because you have to direct to edit. Right. You have to know like what scenes are going into other scenes because if you don't, you have nowhere to cut. You can't just cut a bunch of images together and say, oh, there's a movie, you know. (laughs) But the same thing with sound. It's like if you... Uh, really learn the techniques of miking, and which people do not do anymore. I mean, I'm cutting a documentary right now, sound-wise. I'm cutting that I can see a lav on the guy in the in the on the scene, 
but his his sound sounds like it's coming from a camera, so it has like distance and it sounds hollow. And Oy. I asked the director, I said, "Well, I can see the lob on him. Where is that soundtrack?" She's like, "I don't know," I don't, because you know people hire less qualified film editors. They don't know what to do with all the material, you know. So so then I I guess to we could say certainly if you're a young and aspiring person, make sure you hire the best possible people to work with you, you know, and, and but also trust your instincts. Cause right. I also worked on a film of a friend of mine who, who hired a sound guy based on recommendations. Oh, he's come highly qualified. I said, well, I said, did you listen to the tracks as you were shooting? And she kind of sheepishly said, no. Mm. I said, why? And she said, cause he came highly recommended. I said, well, you still have to listen I mean, you mm-hmm. still have to, as a director, you need to listen through headphones to see what is the mixer picking up on their on their microphones and mm-hmm. is it good quality. I mean, it should sound as good as what you're hearing right now. Right. You know, and if, if I did this right. <laughs> right. And if, you know, if if it isn't, then something's wrong and you got to fix, you know, you want to fix it on the set. No, don't wait. And right. I think as for also uh, directors, it's important to kind of do every phase on a movie. Like, be the electrical department, be the grip, be the production designer, be the, you know, because you want to, like, even a costumer, um, they say silk is your enemy and cotton is your friend to sound. That's in the sound, that sound letter. Mm. You know, like, okay, silk may look pretty, but if you put a lav on silk, you're going to get You can't hear the dialogue, right. Right. And, And hearing the dialogue, that's where your story is. That's what people get used to hearing in the edit room. And when you, when you introduce... ADR or some foreign um, element to the director and editor who've listened to that over and over. It's like you going to see a concert of your favorite band and you've listened to their album over and over. You know every nuance, you know every inflection, you know where every drum hit's going to be. Then you go see them live and they're like doing things differently. <laughs> and it makes the hair on your neck stand up <laughs> like, that's not the way it's done. <laughs> and that's how, yeah. that's how directors and editors are with their production dialogue. Yeah. Um, so you have to be really careful and respectful as a sound editor. You have to be respectful of the director and editor's choices, but I always offer them fixes, right. like alternates from production. And if that doesn't work, then we resort to ADR. Okay. Well, I think we'll wrap up, uh, <laughs> Vicky volume one, but, <laughs> I, told, uh, I told you I could No, this is great. <laughs> but this is great. There's some great information. Oh, and, uh, that if you heard that, that's our next person coming. Oh, you have another person coming. Yes. So we're going to pause one second. So um, again, we're going to thank Vicky for joining us on the program today. And do tell us, like, what is your next evolution? Like, are you writing something now? What are you, what are you doing? Well, um, Shelby's vacation uh, is out on the festival circuit right now. So, and I'm in the process of writing and trying to get funded for uh, a little short, a short short, like a seven to ten minute short called Bully, the mini musical, um, which is about bullying. Now when we say funding, is are you talking about like GoFundMe, that type of thing, or? Anything. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Any donations are welcome. I mean, I, that's what I see as the, the main problem of trying to get our stories out there. Uh, when I say our stories, I mean like women's stories, even, I mean, look at the difference between like, Last March, when uh, Wonder Woman came out, big blockbuster movie, right? Not one nomination for anything, mm-hmm. nothing. Mm-hmm. And Black Panther, huge box office, I'm sure we'll get lots of nominations next year. Why is that? You know, it's still there's a stigma about, oh, it's a woman's film. Nobody wants to see women's stories, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, there's a lot of stories to tell. And, and I really encourage, 
young people to just keep making stuff because practice makes it better. Doesn't right. make it perfect because there's no such thing as a perfect film. Right. You know, but you make it till till it till it satisfies you. And I mean, I know Orson Welles even said that he would never watch his movies because he would be at a different place in his life than when he made them mm. and he'd always want to make it different. And I noticed that from editing Shelby's for a year. I film edited because I was trying to get it under that magic 30 minutes because of film festivals. And that's the other thing. Like film festivals don't want longer than 10 minute movies these days, really. So you, if you want to make films, make them short or make a feature. Don't make them in this in-between <laughs> in between. zone. Okay. I know, it's weird. So, And I'm also writing a feature that I've been working on for about 20 years. And um, it's finally like coming together, and uh, it's kind of my passion project called Always Annie. Always Annie. Yeah. Okay. So that's what Well, I'm doing. if anybody else has any more questions for this uh, segment of our interview with Vicki, you can reach out to us on therightscoff.com, and I'll, I'll pass them to Vicki. I'm, I'm sure she would be happy to answer them. And if there are any producers out there that have some cash lying around, please let us know. I'm uh, really good. <laughs> I, I, I can attest that. She's really good. And uh, again, we want to thank you for joining us today, Vicki. It's really been my pleasure, and, and, and we'll catch up again soon. Sure, anytime. I have a whole lifetime of stories and experiences and hints to give. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Right Scuff. If you liked it, be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes and on SoundCloud and leave us a review. Thank you for listening, and we'll be with you next week with a new episode. Bye!